3. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of verse, verse 1 of chapter 4. So that's on page 982. 982. If you grab that Bible in front of us, you can pick it up. Hey, let's jump in this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I am often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me ask for his help. Uh, Father, we surrender our minds to you, our emotions. Father, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. I want to ask, through the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our King, that, that the word that you would have for us from Philippians would be as it is living and active. And our hearts, Lord, would be receptive and open to what you want us to receive. Father, speak this morning, your servants. Father, we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to paint this morning as we begin just a picture for you. I read this out of a book this week, and I want to, I tried to memorize it, just didn't work. So I want to read this narrative to you to give you a picture of what this text is describing, a background, in some ways a vista for what Paul is using really to write these words to us. Imagine this scenario. You're a first century Philippian. You live right on the edge of Greece, a few miles inland from the Aegean Sea in a hot Mediterranean valley. Philippi is buzzing with life. Tens of thousands of Romans are moving to the city from all over the empire. The city reminds you exactly of Rome. The layouts of the street, the architecture, the art, the culture, even the Latin inscriptions. It's Rome all over again. Now, you haven't been in Philippi for very long. You're a Roman soldier, a warrior, a committed patriot. You spent years all over the empire fighting for Rome. The ground of Macedonia is dyed red. With your blood. But you're not sorry, no, not at all. You're proud that you're a citizen of the eternal city. Because for years, because of the years of your service, Caesar has now blessed you with a plot of land in the middle of Philippi. Everything is tax free. Everything you have, everything that's been given to you, is given to you by your emperor. And that's why every week you gladly go to the temple. You offer incense and you bow down and worship Caesar as Lord. You have Caesar to thank for everything in your life. 
Now, that's how you used to think until Paul showed up. See, Paul came to Philippi talking about a Jew named Jesus, how this Messiah was crucified by your army, died on a Roman cross, and was buried in a tomb around the garbage heap of Jerusalem. Paul claims that this Jesus is the king of the world and that the creator of the universe raised him from the dead. And now this Jesus is Lord. At least that's what Paul claims. But if, if Jesus is Lord... That means that Caesar is not. That means the empire of Rome is the parody. The kingdom of God is the reality. That is a dangerous message. And see, that is why Paul was kicked out of Philippi, taken to Rome, and now is in prison. Paul is a threat to the empire. But see, Paul left behind a group of people, an ecclesia, a church, When you gathered there, it was crazy. It was actually made up of men and women. How insane is that? It was made up of masters and slaves, the nerve. Latins, barbarians, Greeks, Jews, all over the empire. The church is a melting pot. And you found yourself being drawn to Jesus. Even more strangely, drawn to this incredibly odd gathering of people that is now called the church. You started to find yourself believing that Jesus is Lord. That faith in Jesus has started to create a tension in you. On the one hand, you're a Roman citizen and a patriot that. You're a citizen of the eternal city. But on the other hand, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Your ex-army buddies thinks you've, you've lost your mind to align yourself with these Christians. And as a Christian, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And now you feel yourself torn between the two. And then one day you show up. You never thought you would. You came to Lydia's house on a Sunday. You show up for church with all your friends, all your family that also follow Jesus Christ. You gather for the bread and the cup. And guess who shows up? Epaphroditus. He's back. We thought he was dead, but he is back, and he's not only back, he has a letter from Paul that was sent from Rome. Epaphroditus stands up with the 30 or 40 of you gathered, and he begins to read Paul's letter. And then he gets to that phrase, you are a citizen of heaven. Chills run up and down your spine as the implications of the gospel and Jesus Christ become real to you. I've got to make a decision. Either I'm going to follow Jesus Christ and live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, or I'm simply going to remain a Roman, worshiping Caesar as Lord. Because you realize in that moment, it cannot be both. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And your allegiance belongs to Jesus alone. Right then and there, you know you have to make a decision. And you're torn between the two. And see, whether you're a first century Philippian, torn between loyalty to the empire and the kingdom of God, or a 21st century Coloradan, torn between loyalty to Jesus and the modern day Caesars of money, of sex, of power, or whatever, The gospel of Jesus Christ calls you to make a decision. 
Bergen Park Church, who are you going to follow? See, that's the question that Paul starts off with. Who is it that we're going to follow? And that's going to be the backdrop that we're going to jump back into this text. So if you want to pick it up in verse 17, Paul lays down the question, who is it that we're following? See, there's really two colonies. There's the colony of heaven and there's the colony we live in, the colony of America, or as in the text, the colony of Rome. There's a Caesar, there's a Lord. Whether we will worship the lords of creation or the Lord who created all things. Paul asks the question, who is it that we will follow? So in verse 17, he says it this way. Not, uh, actually, that's verse 12. Brothers, verse 17. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example or the pattern that you have in us. Paul says, follow me. Now realize, he just gave his testimony. He just gave his autobiography, and he said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to a law of Pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. But all these things I considered loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul said to follow Jesus means we have to leave the things of this world behind the things that we build our identity on, the things in some ways that gave us a name, a reputation, even gave us success in this world. To follow Christ means to leave things behind. Paul says, if you're going to follow me, what do you need to leave behind? What has too great a grip? What kingdom is holding on to you? Paul says, follow me. And then he not only says, follow me, he says, follow those who follow my example. Or follow the pattern that we gave you. Now, throughout Philippians, he's given us a number of examples. He talked about Timothy, who was like a son. And he served with me in the work of the gospel. He talks about Epaphroditus, and he says, who almost died for the work of, his, work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. And then ultimately, he, he gave us Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Have this same mind that is in Christ Jesus, though he, he, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. See, that's the pattern that Paul is describing. You see that example? The example we gave you. The example we gave you is the example of Jesus that you've seen in Timothy, you've seen in Epaphroditus, you've seen it in me, but church, is it in you? Is the way and the pattern of the kingdom the way and the pattern of your life? Paul's asking us today, who are we following? And if you looked at your life, is it the pattern of this world? Is it the pattern of Rome? Is it the pattern of Caesar? Or is it the pattern of the kingdom of God? Because if we're going to have people following us, we want to make sure our example leads them back to Christ. And so the question is, who are you following? And in some ways, when he says, join in imitating me in verse 17, it could be translated, be imitators with me. Now, the reason I say that is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul wrote it this way. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Meaning, as I follow Jesus, follow me. Because sometimes you need a living example. You know, if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, you probably need an example of a Christian marriage. I don't care how many books you read. If you don't see it in the flesh, it's hard to live it out in the flesh. If you've never seen a Christian parent, a, a, a Christian business person, 
you need to see that in the flesh. And he's saying, imitate me as I am seeking to imitate Jesus Christ. And keep your eyes on others who have the same pattern. Now realize, Philippi isn't a traveled route. It's on one of those main trade routes, marketing routes from Rome to Philippi, off to the rest of the world, right in the middle, which meant there's a lot of teachers that came through Philippi. It's one of those people, places people love to land. And some great teachers would come, people like Paul and Timothy, Epaphroditus. Hey, John, one of the 12, he's traveling around at this time. We got Peter traveling around. But because it's such a major trade route, not only these great teachers would show up who are excellent examples, they're also verse 18. In verse 18, he says, watch out, because there are those that come. They sound like they have the gospel, but there's something distorted in them. And to be honest, in verse 18, when we jump into this, it's pretty heavy language. I could say in our culture, it is deeply offensive language. But it reveals to us the fullness of the kingdom of God. Watch this, verse 18. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, we're not exactly sure who he's talking about. It could be the guys from chapter 1. could be the dogs from chapter 2. We're not sure. But he's saying there are those that are going to come to your city, and some of them are going to kind of look like, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to say the right thing. They're going to look the right thing. They may even act the right thing. But sometimes if you distort just 10% of the truth and you've got 90, you got zero. Paul says in Galatians, if anyone comes preaching a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be condemned. You see, the gospel in Galatians was actually about Jesus. There are people coming to Galatia and talking about Jesus Christ, that he was the only path of salvation, but they added to the gospel the necessity of works for acceptance. And here in this case, it could be something incredibly moral, incredibly religious, and yet listen to the four key factors he describes about their identity. First of all, he says in verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. First of all, their end is destruction. Now, that word end in the Greek, we've talked about this last two weeks, is the word teleos. It means their final destiny, their conclusion is destruction. Now, compare that to chapter 3, verse 12. He says, our teleos in following Jesus is the resurrection from the dead. When Paul looks at the end of his life, the goal of his life, he says, my teleos, my hope, my end result, my purpose in life is the resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying there are those that are going to come and their teleos, their end is, is destruction. But there's coming a day when the Savior will return. We saw in chapter 2, right? Every knee, every knee will bow. Some will bow in worship. Others will bow in abject judgment and fear. And see, that's not something to gloat in, to rejoice in in any way. Those are, those are words that, that Jesus himself taught, that the gospel has an offensive nature, that Jesus, God, is king, he is Lord, and he demands our obedience. And our obedience has not been given, and therefore there is a penalty. The wages of sin is death. Paul says there's a reality of destruction, that God one day will write us out of the story. We will no longer will no longer have a chance to respond to him. Now, why is that? Well, the next phrase, he says, not only is their end destruction, but he says, he says their God are their appetites. That kind of sounds like America, doesn't it? 
How many cooking shows do we have to watch? Yeah, I cannot watch those, even those, uh, what are the, uh, the gains, right? I went to school with them at Baylor University back in the day. Did not know they're going to do that kind of stuff. Otherwise, I hung out with them a lot more, right? Because I don't know about you guys. You know this? Like when you're in college, you don't think the people around you are going to do anything. Did you guys have, right, have that feeling? I'm the only one. Anyways, their appetite. Think of the appetites of our own culture. And how those appetites are constantly fed to us and and as easy as possible, whether it's television or apps or our phone, he says their God is their belly, which really means their appetites. So appetites in the Greek really refers to things like food, drink, and sex. Now, why would food, drink, and sex lead to destruction if you tie the two together? If you live for food, you come under the authority of food, guys. Meaning the teleos of your life is not directed by the Lord. It's now directed by food. And the natural destruction of food when it is your God is destruction. I think all of us have seen that and understand that. Certainly with alcohol, we understand how the teleos of alcohol, how the end of alcohol, if you come under the authority of alcohol, and so you don't know that's happening, do you? If you've struggled with alcoholism, you didn't know you were under the authority, worshiping the power of alcohol, but a day came of destruction. Destruction of relationship, destruction of work, destruction comes along, not because God is vindictive, but if you worship anything other than him, you're taking that hairpin turn at 60 miles an hour and it says 15. You're not hitting a tree because God put a tree in front of you. Destruction comes when we set our appetites, our hearts, our worship on something other than God. And what happens when we set our appetite on sex? We make sex our identity. We define ourselves according to our sexual desire. That becomes the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world, the way we see even God. And what happens is the destruction of that is shame. It's regret. It's pain. It's an emptiness inside. Paul says they live for the passions of their belly. You know, this week I discovered the Denver metro area is fourth You ready for this? In terms of microbreweries per capita. There you go. We're fourth. We're almost there, guys. We're almost, I think Seattle's ahead of us, something like that. They're really rocking it. But we are fourth in terms of microbreweries per capita, which means the appetites of microbreweries, you know, that's, that's us. Not only that, we are the center in some ways for recreation. Our God is to recreate, to enjoy, to be outside, to hike, but all of those things, understand, all those things, sometimes even, could I add, youth sports? They couldn't do it today, right? <laughs> Anyways, what is that? When you put that ahead of God, what happens is it starts, it, it starts to do something to you. You come under its authority. And you may think from the outset it doesn't, it doesn't look insidious. But he's saying when you worship your appetites, when you allow those things to be the things that set your priorities, that set your life, that end is is destruction. Their God is their belly. And then look where it takes it. And it's somewhat progressive. Their glory is in their shame. Meaning the things that they live for, they're not ashamed any longer. Instead, they put it out on display. Celebrity culture, reality television. There are people that make a living off what we once called shameful. It's like getting on a bike going down Evergreen Parkway and riding that bike naked. 
what is shameful is no longer. And we're expressing ourselves. They're glorying in their shame. They're glorying in their destruction. He says that's the quality. That's the quality. And their mind finally, he says, is set on earthly things. Now, what does it mean to set your mind on earthly things? Just quickly, you know, when Paul wrote Philippians, more than likely he was also writing Colossians. That when Paul wrote this, this letter, he was also writing a number of other letters that were sent out to other churches. And he describes what it means to set our minds on earthly things in Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 2. And Paul describes it this way. He says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Meaning not on earthly things. Then if you look at verse 5, he explains what earthly things are. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil passions, desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, we think of idolatry as something that's backwoods. It's something that's the uneducated fall into idolatry, worshiping statues. Our, Our idolatry is not statues. It could be Range Rovers. It could be a body type. It could be a certain success that we've reached, something that is not simply something we've accomplished. It becomes our identity. And when it becomes our identity, as we described, you come under its authority. You can come under the authority of money and success. It may feel good for a while, but it kills the heart. That's not what you're created for. And so he says what it shows up in our life is that we set our hearts on things that cannot give us what God only alone could give us. We set on our hearts on things that God alone can give to us. And he says our end, therefore, is, is destruction. And so j- jump down. And so he says, who are you going to follow? And he goes on to say that we are, in verse 20, we're going to look at this, a colony of heaven. And therefore, our responsibility is to bring the life and the rule of heaven to bear on earth. Not to follow our passions and desires not to live for shameful things. Instead, he's going to transition. He's going to say, we are citizens of heaven, which means our sole purpose is to bring the rule, but listen, to bring the culture of heaven to evergreen. Watch this, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Now, this... Again, it's a difficult passage, and in some ways we look at it and we think what it's saying is one day we're going to escape. That this world is not reality. This world is just simply fading, and one day we're going to escape to heaven. But realize for Paul, heaven is not a destination. It's not where you go when you die. That's an American form of Christianity. Heaven is the realm and the domain of God. Why did Jesus ask us to pray, thy kingdom come? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in evergreen. Father, as it is in heaven. In my business as it is in heaven. In my thought life as it is in heaven. Father, in my finances as it is in heaven. In my marriage as it is in heaven. Our prayer is that God's kingdom would not simply come someday, one day when I go there. Rather, the vision of the New Testament is the kingdom of God is going to be a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And when it does, it will purify all those things that sin has destroyed. Which means we have to live in the purity of heaven today. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to live in the kingdom of God. 
that the laws of my marriage are not the laws of what I want. The laws of my marriage are the laws of my Savior, my King. The laws of my finances are not the laws of what I want. It's the laws of my King, my Savior, my Lord, who is one day going to make all things right. So in some ways, we have to ask the question, what am I hoping in? What are you awaiting, church? What's going to make all things right? You know, a Roman that is in Philippi, his citizenship is one of a Roman, which means that his job was to bring Roman art, Roman architecture, Roman religion, Roman language to Philippi. The one thing that Roman government didn't want him to do is head back to Rome. See, if trouble came, the the goal was not to escape back to Rome. No, for someone who is a Roman citizen living way off in Greece, it was to bring Rome to Philippi. And they had a saying. They had a saying, in Philippi as it is in Rome. That my job as a Roman citizen is not to escape Philippi. No, my, my job as a Roman citizen is to live as a citizen of Rome in the community of Philippi and transform that community so that the culture of Rome becomes the culture of Greece. It changes it. And their goal wasn't when bad times came, their hope wasn't to escape. No, their hope is that maybe the Roman army would come. Their greatest hope is that possibly the emperor would come. The emperor would come from Rome to Philippi and establish forever the Roman rule. You see how that applies to us and to Paul. He's saying to those that are citizens of heaven, what is our hope? What are we basing our hope? What are we hoping for? And then beyond that, what does it look like for us to live as citizens of heaven? To bring the rule and the reign of heaven to Evergreen. I think it first means we have to identify what we're worshiping. You cannot bring the rule of a king that you do not honor and worship. It's just weird. You with me on that? It is just weird. It's the weird to bring the rule and the reign of a king that you don't adore, you don't worship, but the first step is to say, hey, what am I setting my heart on? What, like Paul, as he says, has become an idol in my heart? Is it my appetites? Is it some false hope that I've set my heart on? What am I worshiping? Because see, whatever you worship, you're gonna bring that kingdom into your life. You, you, you gotta realize this. You're not simply human beings, you're worshipers. And as worshipers, we are created to establish God's rule and reign. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. Why did God keep saying to us, rule, subdue, rule over, but not to rule over on your behalf. Bring the shalom, bring my kingdom on earth. The church is to be example, in some ways, a trailer for what heaven will be like. That we're to be a reflection of the character and the culture, not simply of the United States. But if we worship our king, we're to take the values of heaven and bring them into our, our community. What does God value? What does God long for? He doesn't bring the sword. Which means the kingdom of heaven doesn't show up the same way the kingdom of Rome does. You know, James and John, where do they want to sit? Give me power, Jesus. No, the way of the kingdom is the way of the Messiah. It's the pattern of the cross. It's the pattern of death 
and new birth and resurrection. That's what lives out through us in the power of the kingdom of God. It's a brand new kind of life, but it starts as we, we set our hearts on our true king. We allow his kingdom to flow through us. As Paul says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jump down in verse 21, he describes what will happen when Jesus arrives. He says, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. On that day when our Savior comes, two things will happen. One, everything will be brought under his authority. And then second, we will finally experience the fullness of transformation. Our lowly, broken bodies will be like his heavenly body. And Paul says that's what we wait for. That's what we long for. So as citizens of the United States who are citizens of heaven, which kingdom has a greater rule on your heart? Which kingdom, which appetite, which authority have we come under? Because see, the, the beauty of this whole Christian life, it's not change your life to look like the kingdom. No, it's, it's, it's allow the king to dominate your heart. And in worshiping him, his kingdom works through us. What are we waiting for? And then he says, finally, as we, we end in verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example, the pattern you have in us. Now, what is the pattern that Paul has left us? I just want to leave three real quickly for you. The first is the pattern of humility or the pattern of the cross. See, Paul said that back in chapter two. He captured it this way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The first pattern he's given us is a pattern of humility, a pattern of the cross. Imagine if all of us just went out today and lived that way seeking the interest of others ahead of ourselves. They would, people in this community would say something has changed. There's a new kind of person that has shown up in Evergreen. There's a new kind of kingdom that's being established because the outworking of that mentality reflects the heart of our Savior, the pattern of humility. Second, it's the pattern of intimacy. If you look at chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. The pattern of intimacy, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Is that the pattern of the people we're following? And then finally, it's the pattern of perseverance. Chapter 3, verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The pattern of humility, the pattern of intimacy, the pattern of perseverance. Hey, the reality is if Christ is our king, then we are his example. And there are people in this church right now that need an example. But what is the example we're gonna give them? And when it comes to the people that already think the cross, the message of the gospel is foolishness. That pattern has all the more influence on the way people see the God that we worship 
the Savior that we await. See, the beauty of this passage is, is really about that idea of intimacy. Is Christ truly our king? And are his values the values that are working through our life? And one way you can detect that real quick, just evaluate your attitudes this week and ask yourself, what kind of king would produce those behaviors and attitudes? See, it's not so much about changing the behavior of your life, it's about changing the trajectory of your heart and what you worship. Because what we worship establishes a kingdom. What we worship goes out of us through our behaviors, our attitudes. And church, Bergen Park, we are... We are citizens of heaven to live the rule and the reign of heaven in evergreen, in our marriages, in our lives, in our relationships. But let's celebrate and turn to the God that makes that possible. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning, and I just ask in this time as we've, we've gathered together, you've told us to gather, you've commanded us not to give up gathering together. And let yet, Lord, we ask through the power of the Spirit, you would search us and know us, and if there is a pattern in our life that doesn't reflect the pattern of the cross, the pattern of intimacy, the pattern of perseverance, Lord, it comes from a false God. It comes from a false worship. It comes from the belly is destruction. It comes from shame. It comes from all of that which you came to rescue us from, and yet even as citizens of heaven, Father, we walk with one foot in the world, And, Lord, often leaning more towards the world than towards you. And I thank you the solution to that is not to change my life. It's to change in repentance and just admit, Father, these are the things that I'm pursuing, the desires, the appetites. And so in Jesus' name, Father, would you enable us through the power of the Holy Spirit just to simply confess we want to worship you and worship you alone. Father, forgive us for the things that we have set above you whether it's the worries, the pride of lies, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, whatever has dominated our hearts, Father, and established a false reign, a false kingdom, which is a parody, Father, of the true kingdom. Would your light shine into the darkness? And Father, even as we gather this morning, whether we need to come up front and share in communion and just lay those burdens down or we need to just be prayed over today, Father, may we meet you here. And may we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in us and in our community as it is in heaven. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.